Welcome to Story Story Night, the city of Boise's cultural ambassador, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we celebrate the spontaneous story slammers from last season in our annual story competition, Slammer of the Year, Pirates of the Treasure Valley. This year, it was flagship versus late night, with five storytellers selected by the host of each series, myself for flagship and Beth Norton for late night. Each storyteller shared a story inspired by the theme Shipwreck, and then the audience voted for one team to move on and share a story on Rescued for the chance to be named Slammer of the Year. Recorded live at the Outdoor Amphitheater at Jump in downtown Boise, it's story time. Welcome everyone to Slammer of the Year 2023. I am Admiral Eichelberger. And I'm Captain Bill Hooks. Oh, hooks plural. Multiple hooks. Yeah, I got a lot of hooks. Oh, wow. I am such a good admiral, I've already lost my sword. (laughs) It's about yay long. And I set it down somewhere during setup, and is that it? No, that's your sword. <laughs> well, if you see me flailing, please come to the rescue for the queen. For the sorry, queen, king. No, queen, king. I don't know what year we are. Slimy, your queen. How? Uh, so you're a pirate, <laughs> pirate Bill, and you are the host of the late night series. That's right. Is that why you're a pirate, really, really? really? Yeah, we're rated R. Oh. I can't believe I set that one up. <laughs> you're going to do that to me all night, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, Ben Kemper's here, everyone. <laughs> yeah, one of our storytellers with a famous laugh that I always love to hear. Uh, we have beautiful teams back here. Tell us a little bit about the team you've assembled. Uh, so, uh, well, the boatload of, of sh- uh, people. These maggots are the best storytellers you're gonna see around. Until you look over here. Where we have the Royal Navy from the flagship shows, which some of you saw in that glass orb in the sky. As opposed to that teeny little walled fence where we have our late night shows at the prison. Okay. (laughs) Well, you might have the queen's money backing you, but we have the entire ocean. Oh, those are fighting words, fighting words. All right, well, let's, um, did anyone find my sword? (laughs) All right, okay, good. Well, that's the quickest sword that ever, just was delivered by Amazon this afternoon. (laughs) I'm not sure this boat is seaworthy. (laughs) It's not gonna hold up against the wind. We better get this show going. Uh, We have some people to thank or something, or what are we doing? Uh, uh, who's our story subscribers in the house? Oh. Yeah! Thank you, story subscribers. And you'll notice uh, each of our teams is sitting in their individual ships behind me here. We want to thank Boise River Outdoor Opportunities for lending us a part of their fleet for tonight's event. 
The winning team that moves on to the second round will receive a river trip from Boise River Outdoor Opportunities. And then one will go on to win the Slammer of the Year trophy. Oh, can someone bring us the Slammer of the Year trophy? Can you bring us the trophy? Yes, that's it. That's the trophy. Here it comes. It's a box. The trophy this year is indeed a box. It's a treasure chest that inscribed Slammer of the Year 2023, and it is full of hopes and dreams. <laughs> So in this first round, you're going to listen to all the 10 storytellers, and then you're going to vote for your favorite team by casting your treasure into their ship. Our ship. Our ship. My ship. Yes. The team with the largest loot wins. And listening from their table in the back of the amphitheater here are all is the royalty. Uh, they're my bosses, really. The royalty, I have the Royal Navy. I'm royal, royal Navy. And behind me here, well, in front of me, behind you, are all the past presidents of Story Story Night. Our first president, founding president, Alison Haas, Beck, Beck Haas. <laughs> and then we go to Amy Moran and Nope, Bob Haycock, then Amy Moran, and then Carolyn Valaket. They'll be judging the second round. Okay, we are about to hit the high seas. Each storyteller has strictly five minutes. At 30 seconds, you'll see either myself or Admiral Eichelberger um, begin to edge them into the sea. At 10 seconds, they will receive a sharp sword swipe and then knocked into the ocean if they go over time. And our first storyteller is going to be decided by a coin toss. Uh, and Beth and I, neither, uh, sorry, Bill, Hooks and I, neither of us have a coin. So would someone bring up a coin, the, a, um, one of those tokens that you were handed? Could you just fly up here real quick? This is the way we get your money. Here comes a shark. Thank you. All right, so we'll flip. One side is story, story night, and the other side is freedom. Freedom. It's a long story. We'll be freedom. You're gonna be freedom? Clearly. All right, we are story, story night. The first storyteller will be... Freedom! freedom! Oh. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Sky. It was the first time I walked into my younger sister's room. She was a junior in high school and I'm a junior in college. And we realized we have so many things in common. Talking about my mother's El Paso inspired cooking, pozole being the best, and my dad's Wisconsin family mannerisms. Don't you know? And we moved from simply siblings to trusted friends that are siblings and I head up to college, pursuing a double major, also with a job working washing dishes as well as at the UPS store. 
And about halfway through the semester, I notice I'm not sleeping. I'm not sleeping at all. I don't need sleep. And for two weeks, I have energetic days and mood swings at nights, and I am up without a wink of sleep. And I become all consumed in paranoia. I stopped going to class because the, the students are scheming against me. The cook at the dishwashing job, he's a double agent in all the suspicious packages at the UPS store. <laughs> An emergency call goes out by a friend to my parents and they come up and drive for hours around campus to find me and they do and I am wild eyed, unshowered, spewing conspiracy theories, and they ask me to get in the car, and I do. And they can see how distraught I am. All right, let's get you back in the mood here. So I am crazy, okay? I am completely paranoid. I am wandering the streets, even the middle of the streets. I'm following cars. I'm following people, and that's where my parents find me. And they ask me to get in the car, and I do, and they see how distraught I am and how riddled with paranoia. And they immediately drive to the emergency room, and there at the emergency room, the ER staff moves me to the mental health facility, and there at the mental health facility, it's as if a heavy fire blanket is thrown onto my internal thunderstorm. And I take all these medications, and I'm put on a stabilized routine. Doctors and nurses constantly adjusting these medications. After a week goes by, I say yes to a family visit. My mom, dad, and sister come on a cold, frigid winter day to enter the sterile halls of the mental health facility, walking past the posted rules on the doors and the bulletin boards with all the information, catching glimpses of the nurses and patients milling about. And I sit there in this small room on a firm orange sofa, dressed in the hospital-issued clothing, dark circles under my eyes and pale. My mother walks in and she sees me and I can see the shock in her face and she grabs my hand and she says, honey, you're cold. Quickly followed by, but we love you. And my mom, my dad and my sister take a seat in these stiff, uncomfortable plastic chairs and I am hit with a tidal wave of emotion. And just this riptide of an adverse reaction to the medication that I'm on and in rapture, this quick onset lockjaw fuses the muscles in my mouth and I can feel the drool pooling at the side of my mouth. Both my parents get up to go find a nurse and I'm left sharing this room with my sister, which is now a shared nightmare. She holds her composure, puts her hand on my knee, and says, I love you. It's going to be OK. I can feel the tears welling up in my eyes. I love you. It's going to be OK. And she repeats, and I bring my knees up to my chest. 
Her voice is fading, and I can see that the blood has drained from her face. I love you, it's going to be okay. At this point, the drool has passed from my chin and onto my shirt, there for my sister to witness me broken, shattered, and shipwrecked. those pirates mighty tall. All right, that Captain Bill's hooks, what? That was a very formidable, formidable attack against our ship. To combat it, I'm going to invite up a brigadier. Is that something you say in the Royal Navy? Nice, uh, you're in the Navy. Is that a brigadier, that's good? All right, oh, and there I see some enemy over there. Oh, you look beautiful, darling. Beautiful, beautiful, but evil. All right, coming to the mic, Brigadier Robin Dahl. Just sit right back and hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. When I think of a shipwreck, I think of Gilligan's Island. So um, I've been a nurse for over 30 years and I always wanted to go on a medical mission trip. And so a few years ago, I got an opportunity to go to Honduras um, on a mission trip. And I just had this vision of myself as Florence Nightingale flitting around, caring for the less uh, fortunate than me. I thought it'd be a great idea to bring my then 21-year-old son Jacob with me because I, you know, as a single mom of an only child, I always worry that I'm raising one of those Gen Zers that thinks the world owes him everything. So I pictured him in his $150 sneakers with his $1,000 iPhone. And you know, this third world country, these people are just grateful for the smallest things. So, so Jacob came along. Um, we had a great crew. Uh, we had three skippers. They kept everything on course. We had a bunch of Mary Ann's. They were all warm-hearted, nurturing, took care of all our needs. I, on the other hand, instantly was shipwrecked. I became uh, Mrs. Thurston Howell III. I was <laughs> constant. I mean, I was friendly enough, but just please don't make me touch anything dirty. And I was constantly like clutching my pearls and fretting about not having hot water or clean water or running water. I needed a hot shower every day, but that wasn't possible. I wanted a flush toilet, but that was only in the hotel. And uh, worst of all, a lot of the patients had scabies. And scabies is a skin rash that's caused by a burrowing parasite. I was so terrified of contracting this that instead of functioning as an RN, I volunteered in the pharmacy so I wouldn't have to touch anyone. <laughs> and so much for Florence Nightingale here. But um, <laughs> so at night, after the clinics, we would go back to the hotel and everyone else got together and socialized, but I just, 
I totally isolated myself, marooned myself in my desert island of a room, listened to my classic rock, because if I'm going to be marooned, Bon Jovi's going to be there with me. And, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, I, and I would read murder mysteries, because murder calms me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and all the time fretting about any bugs or whatever. Meanwhile, my son, the, the you know, privileged one, uh, he totally embraced the th whole thing. He immediately engaged with the people who were in country that helped us. He spoke no English, I mean no Spanish, but he somehow effectively communicated with them by speaking English with a Spanish accent. I don't know why it worked, but it did. He became our Gilligan. He was a, an amazing first mate. He was entertaining. He would help with anything he could. And most of the time, he was entertaining the kids. He'd have one on his shoulders. He'd have ones painting his fingernails and toenails. He'd kick soccer balls with them. And these kids don't have much, and they recognized a good heart, and they were drawn to him like a magnet. So in the end, this privileged child of, me, of mine, this Gen Zer, taught me the lesson that I had hoped to teach him because ultimately I had to take a real raw look in the mirror at my own entitlement. And Jacob, incidentally, is smart enough that he could have been the professor of this trip, but he's also wise and he knew what we needed was a Gilligan. I couldn't have been prouder of him for picking to be our Gilligan. For me, the next shipwreck of my life I'm gonna embrace my inner ginger. I've already bedazzled my stethoscope, sequined my scrub top, and I'm working on my sexy voice. <laughs> Formidable, formidable competition there from the Royal Navy. Um, but I am so pleased to bring up your next storyteller, my first mate. Please welcome Gigi. I was an intense child. I learned how to read at three, and once school began, I was into it. And in fourth grade, my teacher called my parents and said, you must be pushing her too hard. Today, she asked me what she needs to do to get into a good college. And my dad laughed and said, I don't even care if she shows up for fourth grade. So this is the same man who has always told me that he never worried. He knew that I could be dropped out of a plane in the middle of nowhere, land, find a place to live that night, and by the end of the week, I would be running the joint. But fast forward eight years to my senior year, I get the envelope, the one that tells me I'm going to my dream school, the school. I'm not gonna explain which one, you can guess. And instead of telling my parents or calling my friends, I put it under my pillow and I dreamt that I knew JFK Jr., that I worked at George Magazine and that I was married to one of his lesser known cousins and that I was about to become the editor of Vanity Fair. And the next morning, I showed my counselor, and he said, OK, here's a piece of paper. Take it to your parents. Show them what we need for your FAFSA. 
So I go home and I'm like, hey, we're eating dinner. And I'm like, here's a piece of paper. I need to have this so that I can go to college at this beautiful place on the East Coast. My dad looks at the paper, crumples it up, and tosses it across the room. And he says, I do not want the government sniffing around here, reading up all the things, and knowing all about us. So I kind of spiraled down from there. This is halfway into my senior year. I go to my AP calculus teacher, the man who got hired because I, the sole girl, and five other guys had qualified to have AP calculus in 1989. And I tell him everything that's wrong with him, and I throw in some F-bombs just to pepper it. And I tell him I no longer want to be in your stupid class. And he tells me, you can take the F. And I go, fine, give me the F. So he does. And then two weeks later, I got into a fight with my journalism advisor, and he demoted me from editor to entertainment editor. I tried to embrace it. But while I'm walking around the school with one of my friends and telling her that I'm planning on getting my GED, I turn the corner and a boy smiles at me. And I think, okay. And I look at her and I say, I'm gonna marry him. And she says, really? And I say, yeah. And then three years later, I do. Because I had put all of my effort that I'd put into academia into this boy, poor kid. We get married, he's in the Air Force, we end up here in Idaho. And then we get divorced. And once again, I spiral. I lose track of who I am and how determined I am and who I could be. And I'm the person who's supposed to be dropped out of a plane and land and be able to run the place. But instead, I wake up in the hospital. And they tell me they're not going to let me out, that I have to have someone sign off for me. And so I call my parents. And they drive almost 10 hours from the small town I came from in Northern California. And they have to sign me out. And I make up all these big excuses. I was drinking. It was stupid. I'm sorry, because I'd harmed myself. And it was bad. And after my mom was, OK, she's fine. It's just drinking. She goes off to get a cookie. And my dad sits on the bed. And he says, I'm worried about you, kid. And I say, no, no, I'm fine. It's just drinking. And he looks at me and he says, I think you should come home with us. And I sit for a second with that and I say, no, this is home. I'm fine. And then I start crying and I look at him and I say, I don't run the place, Dad. And he said, not yet. Well, 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 I've never wanted to hug a pirate before. I, um... So she put all her academic energy into her relationship in high school. I never had a relationship in high school, so I was a straight-A student. And because I'm so smart, I'm going to put up Brigadier David Fitch. So my wife Catherine and I had recently retired 
and we were looking for a new way to redirect our energies away from the working world. We needed a goal, a purpose, a quest. We searched around for just the right thing and at last found the Grand Canyon, one of the natural wonders of the world. We were going to take a trip and visit the Grand Canyon. We set up an intricate travel plan all through Idaho, through Utah, down through Arizona. Months of research went into getting just the right camper. We had one custom built. And to make this the perfect land yacht, we bought a new Jeep Grand Cherokee to tow it with. And this Jeep had every bit of safety technology anyone could ever need. Or so we thought. So a few weeks before we were heading off on our grand tour, our tour of a lifetime, my wife, our dog, I loaded everything up for a shakedown cruise. We were just going to go a little ways away, Three Island Crossing, an hour and a half away, loaded everything up, took a drive down there, everything went smooth, we camped, the camper worked great, we had a wonderful time. We were on our way back, sailing down the highway, listening to the radio, watching the beautiful scenery go by, the very picture of a tranquil voyage. When out of the windshield, we see screaming at us, rolling and bouncing, a wheel with a closing speed of 140 miles an hour. It slams into us, we jackknifed, we flipped over, now we're sliding on the side, hanging sideways, the sound of shattering glass and rending metal screeching in our ears. Our airbags exploded in our faces, my head's mashed against the side, I can't move, I'm seeing all the other cars and trucks on the highway swirling around us. I'm expecting at any second to get slammed into and crushed. And at last I see a big white camper coming along. Bam! We hit it and we slid to a stop. We're hanging there sideways, looking out at the world. I still couldn't move. I could feel a little blood dripping down my face, but I felt pretty much okay. I asked Catherine if she was okay. She said, well, I think I am. A bunch of people stopped. Several of them climbed up onto the top of the Jeep. They pried the door up. And the guy says, what can I do to help? And I said, you can pop this airbag. <laughs> this being Idaho, he pulls out a big hunting knife, stabs the airbag right in front of my face. Pop! Well, I could move my head now, but I still couldn't get loose. He reaches in again with his knife, cuts the seatbelt loose helps me out. I climb down on the pavement and then I see the camper we hit was our camper. You are never supposed to see your own trailer out the windshield. He helped my wife Catherine out. He even got in and helped our 80-pound German Shepherd get out of the thing. I thought that was heroic. We gathered up next to the highway with all the people that had been helping us. It was surreal. We'd had a crash at 70 miles an hour and we had a few minor cuts and scrapes. Not too bad. But there, strewn across the highway, was the wreckage of our beautiful land yacht 
and our adventure voyage of a lifetime was shipwrecked before we even got out of the harbor. Thank you. David, you better hold on to your shoes because I'm going to steal those later. Um, okay, I don't have anything funny to say. Just can't wait to bring up your next storyteller, the best deck schwabber we've got, Jeff. In my head, this was going to look more piratey, and I think I kind of look like a Coke dealer from Miami Vice. But. That's what I've got to work with in wardrobe. So, sometimes the shipwreck happens without you, and sometimes you grow up after the shipwreck and it just becomes part of your origin story. And you sift through the pieces trying to figure out what the things were shaped like and how they behaved. My mother died when she was 31, and I was two, and my brother was five. And I grew up in a small southern town where I'd, I'd frequently run into people who would almost invariably say things, uh, you know, that a child would want to hear. She really lit up a room. She was a good Christian woman. She loved children and small animals. Uh, and, you know, it was soothing when I was a kid, but you can sort of see how something like that leave, left me with a very incomplete picture of the person she had been. So. All through my childhood and my teen years, she was sort of, to me, this stained glass saint that kind of became my conscience. And things went on that way until I was almost 25 and I moved to Atlanta where it so happened her sister, my Aunt Mitzi, lived. And Mitzi was wonderful for a lot of reasons, still is, but she doesn't sugarcoat things and this was her sister and you know sisters take some license with how they describe each other and tell stories so she'd be pickling okra or chopping a cucumber and something would come out of her mouth like well one time your grandparents went to birmingham for the day and your mother chased me around the house with a meat cleaver and an enema bag and i can't tell you how much i needed to hear stories like that and I, you know, we literally laughed until we cried, and it was, it rounded her out as a person. It also started for me this whole debate in my head of, you know, the humor that I lean on in my life. Is it, is it nature? Is it nurtured? You know, now that, that's something interesting. And um, my grandfather had been a colonel in the Air Force, and... Uh, they lived in Ankara, Turkey, when he was a sort of ambassador over there. And they lived in a big apartment full of expats. And this is another story that Mitzi told me preparing some vast southern meal. Um, and she said uh, there was a little British girl who lived in this, uh, in this apartment with them. And my mom and this girl were both about 12. Mitzi's about five. And they told her that she could be in their club if she would stand in the courtyard at noon and scream the secret word three times. And the secret word turned out to be vagina. And so they did, they let her, you know, in the club, they made good on their promise. But 
Um, you know, again, there are these layers of this person who had been described to me as a saint, and then I find out that, you know, she's mischievous and she's funny. And, you know, as an adult, of course, she, as we all do, had to become a little more serious. And she was the only woman in her uh, medical school class at the University of Alabama when, much to her dismay, as what do we like to say these days, the old white men had predicted that she would get pregnant and drop out. And she got pregnant with my brother. They were married, uh, my dad, and, and she, she had to leave school. Um, but uh, by all accounts, um, she was extremely stoic at the end. It was um, ovarian cancer. And, and here was a woman who, as a little girl, they'd been stationed at Hickam Field at Pearl Harbor, and she had literally survived the attack as a two-year-old with like machine gun bullets raking the building that they lived in and flying back in a plane with the windows painted black at night and only to die, you know, at 31 with uh, some disorder linked to talcum powder. It just seems kind of ridiculous, but at the end, she was very brave and she was very stoic and she had that kind of courage that only somebody with just a really unshakable faith can have. And I admire the bravery and I envy the faith, but I wish it had ended differently. I mean, it's selfishly, I wanted the ending where she grabbed my brother and me and, you know, pulled us to her and, I don't know, kind of went crying <laughs> because I wanted to feel missed. But that's the thing when you dig through the wreckage trying to find out your origin story, it never takes the shape that you had sort of hoped it would. But uh, the one thing I've learned is that I do enjoy the looking and I'm grateful for everything that I learned and I'm gonna keep digging through the wreckage. Makes sense to me, I think pro oh, where's my accent? Makes sense to me. I think probably most saints have vaginas, really. The real ones. The real ones. Real hairy ones. The real oh, good thing the mic wasn't on for that one. <laughs> so we are about halfway through. I did neglect to mention that was a cue line, by the way. We are halfway through. And I neglected to mention where the uh, lavatory is. <clears throat> it's here. <laughs> this is the poop deck. <laughs> I am told that is the forecastle. Uh, but I don't know what happens there. <laughs> um, the real lavatory is underneath the stairs over there. So, uh, as you need. Also, I have not spoken about the sharks that are infesting these waters here. They're very talented sharks. Uh, they are interpreting for the deaf and the hard of hearing right now is Lavona Andrew. And the other circling shark is Sierra McIver. Sierra, where are you? All right, that cue line was supposed to trigger a bottle that was coming to the front of the stage. 
Has the bottle in fact moved anywhere? Does someone have the bottle? It's clear in the back still. It's coming, I can see it. Oh, here it comes. We are supposed to get a message in a bottle, is what I'm told. <laughs> but you know, when you throw a message into the ocean, it takes a very long time. It's almost, Beth is swimming. Swimming, swimming, be careful of the sharks. Swimming, she's got the bottle. She's opening the bottle with her teeth. It's salty and craggy. And in the message, and what's amusing about this is earlier I prepped this without the stick in the middle and I spent 45 minutes trying to get the paper out. That's why we rehearse. There is a piece of uh, anachronistic scotch tape in the center of the roll to keep it from unfolding. Do you need, do you need some help? I have a knife, a uh, sword. Oh, I'm so excited for this message. What could it possibly say? Boise River Outdoor Opportunities is your premier provider of fun and adventurous outdoor experiences. That's amazing. They're the ones who we have the rafts from. We did get a good deal on the rafts. Um, we provide guided raft tours on the Boise River and the Snake River. Our trips are great for the entire family from three years old to 100 years old, or even office parties of up to 50 guests. Check it out at www.boiseriveroutdoor.com. All right, I think we should move on to our second volley. You're doing quite well, I must say. And but I have some big... I was going to say big balls in my boat, but <laughs> I've already gone through most of them. Uh, well, actually, my next storyteller, it's quite sad. Uh, so we didn't know this when we set up the show, but we actually have a daughter who was abandoned by her father on my team. Uh, he left to become a pirate. And in fact, he was your last storyteller on the plank. And this poor girl, she's only 11 years old, her father left her to join Captain Bill uh, Hooks, and she was left with destitute, really. I found her in a dark corner next to the little match girl. And I said, I, the match girl died, but I said to her, I said, Elise, I want you in the Royal Navy. I know you're only 11 years old, but you'll be amazing, and she is. So please welcome, she, by the way, this is not my sword. Uh, she found it in the boat, and when her dad was speaking, she handed this to me urgently and told me to get after him as quickly as possible. <laughs> so coming to the stage is none other than the daughter of the last pirate, Elise Carlson Rogers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay, so this was my shipwrecked summer. So it all started when it was the very last day of school. It was really exciting. So my mom was driving me home from school because I can't drive yet. And um, she told me that one of my best friends, Lily, I don't know if she's in the audience, 
was getting diving certified and she was allowed to choose one friend who could come like get diving certified with her and she turns out she had chosen me so of course i was like yes 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 that's probably what i did i was like i was ecstatically excited so two or three weeks later we had started our studies if you want to call it that, with scuba school. So we pretty much, we went to this pool and we got to breathe through regulators. And there were some really scary parts of it because we had to take our mask off underwater and like switch regulators. And that was, I didn't like that. That was scary. Cause like we were, we were deep enough. That like if I dropped my leg regulator, I might run out of air. So, okay. So. Fast forward, if we go to Friday, we were at Lucky Peak and we were getting certified and we had to do a bunch of um, fin pivots, buoyancy control, yeah, scuba diver stuff. I, I still don't understand half of it. I understand most of it, but dive tables, I my small brain does not understand that. Okay, so. We all, turns out, me and Lily both passed our tests. We got diving certified. And about a day or two later, we found out that her grandmother, who was an avid diver, and my mom had been planning a dive trip for us to Honduras, Rotan Honduras, to one of, like, the most, um, most, like, it's a very, very famous scuba diving place. That's, that's all I'll put it. And there's coral, and there's endangered species, and shipwrecks. I was excited about the shipwrecks. So we arrived at Rotan Honduras, and I was expecting three, four dives the whole week. Turns out we're doing three to four dives a day. So it rolls around to about Tuesday, Wednesday, and I start feeling this sharp pain in my elbow, which is not good for anyone who doesn't dive that's called the bends which we thought it was the bends anyone who doesn't know what that is and is really curious can come to me and at intermission and ask me i can explain it but they were like oh my god wait you might have the bends and of course my dad had to bring me to one of the island doctors but it was actually fun when i walked in there's this big um decompression chamber and it looked like one of those like big things that hold propane at the gas stations it, uh, it was a little bit intimidating. I did not have the bends, but I did sit out a whole entire day of diving, including seeing eagle rays. I was not happy about that. I can, I can tell you that. But the next day, the amazing thing happened where we got to dive a shipwreck. So we went down, um, we went pretty deep actually, and we found the cutest little garden eels will pop up and they're like, okay, oh, there's a human, Never mind." And they'll pop back down, and then less than three or four seconds later, they'll be like, is it gone? Nope, they're still here. Uh, it's really, it's really amusing. And I also saw a moray eel down there, and an anemone. I have no idea how that got down there. I mean, we are in the ocean. But, okay. So we got up, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my whole entire life, and I loved it. And that was my shipwreck of a summer. And while I was practicing this, it turns out that AKR, the place I went to, to dive, had sunk the ship. So maybe my summer wasn't really shipwrecked after all. AKR cheated, they definitely cheated. 
And that was my shipwreck of a summer, not really a shipwreck. Just want you to know I had a talk with the fathers, all the father pirates, and we will be paying child support, so. <laughs> We're an ethical um, ship, okay. Mmm, smells like cinnamon rolls. Um, okay, your next storyteller is making her way to the stage. Your next pirate, please welcome the lovely Mandy. <laughs> My voyage started almost 18 years ago. Almost 18 years ago. I chose to have another child. As a single mother, we all know, as being a parent, period, parenting comes with many, many challenges, but it also can be very rewarding. I have to say, there's no amount of preparation or anything that anyone could tell you or do to raising a strong-willed child. From watching her grow up with lots of tenacity and fearlessness and being excited for what her future was. But never did I think in a million years that things could turn quickly to be, have so many ups and downs. From getting in trouble in the fifth grade with drugs and being part of the system. It's scary. Our system is a messed up system. It doesn't really help. And then there you're left with no help also. The other thing that's really hard is it's such a lonely world having a strong-willed child. For you don't want to talk to people about what your child has done or what's going on or what fight was happening. You don't want to be judged to hearing what did you do wrong, because you're already doing it in your own head, constantly. Punishing yourself, what went wrong, how could I have done things different? I tried everything. I tried counseling, sports, you name it. And then it just continues. And nobody knows how hard it is unless you're in the situation or if you see the gaslighting to the constant like doing whatever you want no matter what you say it's very difficult it's a really hard work, journey to be on but i have learned a lot i'm learning how to take better care of myself and knowing that this actually isn't my voyage i'm just along for the ride and hoping and praying that it doesn't sink That's right, this is the part of the show where I come out and mingle with the audience. Not really. <laughs> Although, hey, it is kind of, oh, thank you. If I had a piano, I could do some uh, Liberace or something. All right, our next storyteller is Brandon Doff.
this happened a few years ago. I went whitewater rafting in Colorado on the famous Arkansas River. I went with a group of friends and we were on a raft that looked suspiciously like this one back here. <laughs> a little bit smaller because it was just four of us. We were so excited. Now, typically when you're whitewater rafting, you need to have a system that you can communicate. Our guide for that trip uh, typically would be somebody who yells and tells you when to paddle, when to stop, and they have different ways that they would navigate the river. Our situation was unique because we were deaf and all of us use sign language to communicate. So shouting from the back would be pointless. <laughs> That's not gonna help at all. So we tried to think of how we could communicate. Our guide for the trip was also deaf and so we came up with a system. When he wanted us to paddle, he would bump the boat one time. We could all feel that boom, and we would know we needed to dig in and paddle. If he bumped twice, we knew stop. So this was our system. It was gonna work. It was pretty simple. We thought we could manage it. So we got on our life jackets, we got on our helmets because this section of the river has some great rapids. We're going down the river and oh, it was such a good time. There's so many great rapids. We're laughing, we're having the time of our lives. We can see these gorgeous mountains. The water is glistening, it's a perfect day. Now keep in mind, I'm on the front left corner and my good friend is across from me on the right. So like they would be shotgun and I would be the driver if it were a car. Now I'm looking ahead and I can tell that there are going to be some waterfalls because I'm seeing a huge mist. And I was like, yeah, let's get ready. I am ready to go. And I grab my paddle and I'm waiting for the bump because I have to follow the rules. You have to follow the rules on the river. We're getting closer and closer. I am seeing the mist. I am feeling the mist. Did I miss the bump? Why is there no bump? I look, my friend is also ready. We are primed, <laughs> eyes wide open. We're looking at each other. Okay, okay, we're gonna do it any second. Finally, the hardest, boom! We dig in for all we're worth, but it was too late. We are on the edge of the water, going over the waterfall, and you can see there's a huge rock. We slosh up and skid on the side. The water has sloshed into the boat and it took us back and flipped us the other way. This all happened in the blink of an eye. And so I remember looking, I'm on the bottom and my friend who is a very large man is above <laughs> me in the air as we are flipping. I knew he was gonna hit me, but suddenly we, we end up in the water and my only thought was cold. It was freezing, we're fumbling, and your survival instinct cuts in. I knew I had to get my feet down river. If you don't know, put your feet down river. That way you don't hit your head as you're going down the rocks. So I knew I had to do that, and I got my feet in front of me, and then I realized I don't know where my friends are. I don't know where our stuff is, or my friend's stuff, but everything was in these two bags. By everything I mean, cell phones, dry clothes, the keys for our vehicle, all the things. Suddenly I see the two bags and I grab them, I pull them over, 
And now I'm holding onto them like some sort of buoyant raft and floating down the river. And that's when it hit me. I had been shipwrecked. This is why I never go whitewater rafting. (laughs) And I know that's weird coming from a pirate, but the ocean is much safer. (laughs) All right, your final pirate of the evening is Laura. The summer I graduated college, I got a job in New York City. And when I first moved, eating less was a smart financial choice. The ethos of the city, young, broke, and hungry, my friends and I took that literally, preferring to spend our limited income on things more fun than three squares a day. Very quickly, though, I realized that the culture of hyper-competition and excellence at my new job had more than just work performance. Um, It was a lot about appearance. So I took cues from my glamorous new coworkers and stopped eating the free bagels at the office on Fridays. Then I stopped eating bagels. Everyone I knew in New York was too busy eking out their own existence to uh, think it was weird that every time I was at lunch, I said, I was having dinner later. And if I was at dinner, I'd had a huge lunch. If I was out, I was gonna eat when I got home. If I was home, I'd eaten while I was out. No one thought it was weird that I was working out twice a day, that I said I was juice cleansing all the time, but I couldn't afford a juice cleanse, so I was actually just drinking juice. (laughs) And uh, despite uh, pages and pages in my meticulous food journal of days logged under 500 calories, I couldn't get small enough. I was still too big for the chairs at the trendy restaurants in Williamsburg, too big in my puffy winter coat on the subway, bumping into people. And maybe it was that, maybe it was just general post-grad on way. Uh, But a year after I got to New York, I left. I quit my job, I sold everything, I got a one-way ticket to Seattle, and I started hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. (laughs) And everyone who knew me in my life at this time was kind of like, you know, you've only been camping three times, and um, you've literally never been backpacking. And uh, and those things were true. Um, But I had this sort of secret motivation. I figured, you know, no matter what, this is like a pretty extreme thing to do, so like, gonna lose a little weight, right? So the first section of trail I plan to do is from this place in Washington called White's Pass to Cascade Locks in Oregon. It's 144 miles. And I'd read somewhere that PCT hikers hike 20 miles a day, so I was like, okay, 144, 20 miles, seven, seven days, right? I maybe pack myself four days of food, like generously. And I get on trail and immediately I am absolutely enthralled to this experience. Waking up with the sun, walking all day in the shadows of giant peaks, falling asleep with the imprint of the Milky Way beneath my eyelids. It's the best thing I've ever done. Um, But you know, because I'd been working a desk job at sea level a few days earlier, uh, physically, excruciating. (laughs) And then I ran out of food. (laughs) So with 63 miles left to town, um, all I had left was this little glass vial of olive oil. And so for three days and three nights, 20 miles a day with a pack on in the Washington mountains, just glugging olive oil for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I even smashed the bottle open and like licked the shards uh, to get the last drops. My descent into town, my last few miles, are this super steep, 
rocky downhill into the Columbia River Gorge. And because I'm so faint from hunger, I kept falling. Um, and so by the time I crossed the Bridge of the Gods into Oregon, I was covered in blood. <laughs> Dodging concerned townsfolk, I went straight to a market, and about four foot long sub sandwiches, several pounds of grapes, a couple of pints of Ben and Jerry's, a lot of hot chips, um, family-sized pack of Oreos, and I checked myself into a motel. And I did nothing for the next 24 hours except eat and sleep. I even put the subs on the pillow next to me at the hotel so I could just like barely lift my head up. And at the end of this 24 hours of like me time, um, I get up and I see myself in the mirror for the first time in eight days. And I am so thin, like beyond my wildest dreams of thin. Um, but then I notice the gashes all over me from falling. I see my ribs, my cheeks are hollow. If my body was a ship, I wrecked it. I ran it aground on purpose before I even left the harbor. And in hindsight, sort of the world's dumbest revelation, but I was like, I actually think it would be cooler to walk to Mexico than it would be thin. And so five months later, when I stood at the border of the United States and Mexico, I knew that my goals and my priorities were very different than when I'd left New York. I knew that I was very different. Um, I did not know how much I weighed. Have you noticed that the pirates only have first names? Very suspicious, very suspicious. Running from the law, I suppose. Well, we've done it. We've come to the last storyteller of the evening for your consideration. From the Royal Navy, please welcome Jean Cardinio. Something's missing. When I think of shipwrecks, I think of things gone missing and loss. And when I think of loss, I think of the year 2004. In 2004, I had a car accident. We all managed to walk away, but the car was totaled. I lost a good friend named Vicky. And after Vicky died, I quit playing music. I started playing music when I was just little, but it wasn't until the late 90s when I was in my mid-20s Thanks to Jewel and Alanis, I taught myself how to play guitar and to sing. And when I was looking for a guitar, I found an ad in the paper. And the guitar was no longer available, but the woman who answered invited me over to her house for a jam. And it was at this random jam that I met Vicky. I also met a duo partner that I ended up playing with for the next five years. And then after a few years, I lost touch with Vicky. And it wasn't until I was out shopping I saw somebody who resembled Vicky. So I cautiously approached to say hi. And it was Vicky, but she didn't have any hair. She was going through chemotherapy for breast cancer. I ended up spending a lot of time with Vicky and her partner, Shawnee, after that. And it was between that summer and that winter that Vicky's cancer went into remission, but then returned and metastasized into her brain and her bones. And then it was on March 24th, 2004. It was a Wednesday. 
that Vicky died. And I was there with her, along with her sister Amanda and two others. And Vicky was just 46 when she died. And I didn't realize how young that was. And I was just 30 at the time. I didn't even realize how young I was. And we were both Capricorns, and Shawnee's an Aquarius. And I don't remember the birthdays and the holidays from that time period. But what I do remember is a trip that Vicky and I took to Grover's. And I remember it because of how I felt that day, just connecting with her one-on-one. -on -one. But she must have needed a nut or a screw or something. So we hopped in her Bronco, just me and her. And after Vicky died, her partner Shawnee told me that Vicky thought I was wise because of a, of a conversation we had that day. It was after her cancer had already returned. And she was saying, I don't know why it came back. Why did the cancer come back? I've already been through this. I don't know what the lesson is for me. And apparently the little 30-year-old me said, maybe the lesson's not for you. And as I look back, a lot of lessons were learned because of that experience. But the one that stands out to me the most is to appreciate and value all the connections I get to make, big or small, whether it's the person selling a guitar through the paper, going on a mundane trip to the hardware store, or sharing the loss of a loved one with a friend. So going back to the shipwreck theme, it also makes me think of sunken treasures and how sometimes if you're lucky, they can be recovered. And for me, one of those sunken treasures is Vicky's sister, Amanda. You met her earlier, she brought up the violin. And I also mentioned earlier that I quit playing music after Vicky died. And music has always been a catalyst for connection for me. And it wasn't until 2012, so eight years later, I answered an ad on Craigslist. It was an all-female band called the Cougars looking for a violinist. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should pull out that blue violin. And I thank Vicky for bringing back that sunken treasure of music for me, because when Vicky died, she passed on to me her blue violin. Thank you. Bravo! 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 Oh, we've reached the time now where the power moves from us to the audience. So for the next 10 minutes, you, supposedly each of you has a lovely token. You are able to come up here and toss a token into the boat you want to float. The ship you want to sail. Oh, well, that didn't rhyme, but... <laughs> Keep thinking, I'll give you a second. During intermission, we're going to have some more lovely music from the Corvids, everyone. Woo! So we'll be back. Uh, the bar is back behind you over there. And we'll be back in 10 minutes to, d to reveal who wins to move to the next round. Cheers. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and folks, and peoples, and all y'alls that are out there, I have some very good news. I know several of you are very concerned, 
but I found my sword. It yeah, was in my car. Better. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing was it took me the entire intermission to retrieve it because my keys are on the fourth floor of jump. <laughs> but I got it. It's worth it, right? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Clink, mm. clink, 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 clink. Crash. Crow. I'm gonna take this back to the Amazon pirate store. I'm returning that. Story Story Night paid $9.99 for that. This is really cheap. Yeah. Use some gum, maybe. I don't. Uh, we get to reveal now, we're gonna have Natalia Didrosia, our volunteer coordinator, walk the plank to reveal which team is moving on to the second round. Here she comes. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and the results are in! So if you'd like to volunteer for Story Story Night... <laughs> Who will win? Story Story Nights! Slammer of the Year! Wow, we are wasting your talent. <laughs> if you would like to volunteer, talk to me. And the winner is, drumroll please, the Royal Navy! The Royal Navy. Now, Beth did complain because she said, how dare you, you have a child on your team. What she doesn't know is originally we also had a dog on our team. It's Piper, right over there. Piper has a lovely story. Oh, Elise, Elise, come back. Elise, Elise, Elise. Focus, you have to tell another story, my dear. A three minute story. Uh, someone is going in the drink. I, not, I bet, the, I, well, we'll see. All right, I think, why don't we tell our rescue stories in the same order that we did the first act. <laughs> Which means some of you are very, well, all of you should be extremely excited to welcome back for the grand champion round, Robin Nadal. I forgot to tell you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, no, oh. What? Oh, God. <laughs> in this round, in this round, in this round, it's three minutes on the theme rescued. Okay. So I was adopted at birth uh, in the 1960s before open adoption was even a thing. And uh, my adoptive parents loved me fiercely, and I grew up believing that my adopt or my biological mother gave me up uh, out of love, knowing that she couldn't give me the life that she would want for me. And in a way, I think that both my adoptive mother and my biological mother felt like 
they were rescuing me through this adoption, and I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, unfortunately, both my adoptive parents died relatively young, and I was effectively an orphan by age 21. And I had some curiosity about my biological heritage, but uh, I, I didn't want to be the one that intruded on someone's life, uh, you know, however many years later. Um, so instead, I tried to make myself easy to be found if someone was looking for me. I registered on an adoption registry, and then uh, I, when it became available, I submitted DNA to 23andMe. And it took several years till I got a really close match. But in 2020, I got a match that I, when I saw it, I thought, well, that person knows my biological mother. Uh, but again, I didn't want to be that person that intruded on someone's life in case I was a secret they didn't want told. Uh, I waited, and a within a couple weeks, I got a message from uh, that match, who turned out to be my half-sister. And she let me know that my biological mother was still alive and had wondered and worried about me her whole life. So uh, that morning, I woke up, and I hadn't had a mother in over 30 years. And, when, and I hadn't ever had a sister. And when I went to bed that night, I had both. Uh, we connected through email, phone calls, texts, uh, even some Zoom meetings, but the pandemic and uh, 2,500 miles kept it, our, our meeting in person, uh, it delayed it. But finally, in October of 2021, I was able to meet my birth mother, Jill. And it was a blessing because uh, she actually ended up passing away eight months later, on, ironically, on my birthday. And I think about these two women who rescued me 50 years apart, right? Uh, these two mothers of mine. And in a way, they rescued each other. My, my, my adoptive mother had always wanted children. And she had three full-term pregnancies that were lost. And finally got, you know, the girl of her dreams, clearly. And, and then my... <laughs> And then my biological mother had uh, spent a lifetime second-guessing her decisions and in the end was able to die peacefully knowing that she had it right all along. And so I think of that, that it, in, as far as rescuers, I rescued them, they rescued me. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. I believe next up as your candidate for Slammer of the Year is uh, David Fitch. So we got a new camper. and a new Jeep. So far as I could tell, it still didn't have any wheel avoidance system on it. But we needed a new purpose for our land yacht. Because you have to plan these trips to Grand Canyon a year ahead to make reservations. So that was out. We searched around for some trip of a lifetime again, and we were rescued 
by our heroes from yesteryear, the Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, The Who, and Pink Floyd. They were all coming together in Palm Springs to do a huge three-day rock concert called Desert Trip. The venue was called Coachella, nicknamed for this one, Old Cella, in deference to the age of the musicians and most of the audience. Catherine, I, the dog, loaded up in the camper, headed for Palm Springs. We had a smooth trip down there. We had a camp spot right on the venue. We got there, we got to visit around with everybody, talking about it. We could hear them doing sound checks by the Rolling Stones, sound checks. We thought we had our expectations properly set that we were just going there to pay homage to our heroes. They weren't gonna be that good because they're all old geezers. Uh, and we were just gonna pay tribute for all the joy they brought us over these decades. We were wrong. They put on a fantastic show for three days. High energy, these guys are in their 70s acting like 20 year olds. We had a fantastic time, the best concert of my life. We went down there thinking we were going on a trip designed for senior citizens, and what we discovered was our 20-year-old selves were still alive and well inside of us. Trip of a lifetime and rescued by the rock legends of history. Thank you. The rock legends of history. I used to do a Tina Turner impression. <laughs> Not gonna do it. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen and folks and all y'all. Now it's time for Piper's best buddy, Elise. <laughs> Oh, there we go. I made it to the second round because of uh, where, where did Piper go? Piper. <laughs> All right, here's my three minute long story about the time the roasted marshmallow got out of the bag. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know, I don't think anyone knows, I currently have three chickens. And I moved here about two years ago to Idaho. So this was back when I lived in Portland and um, I was still best friends. I'm still best friends with her, but I would have like frequent sleepovers and camping trips with one of my best friends. So one night she was over at my house. We were getting ready to go drive off to a camping trip. And me and her had the brilliant idea to chase around my chickens with a watering hose. That was not a good idea. So one of my chickens is named Bullet. She literally looks straight down like a roasted marshmallow. She's really fluffy and she's the cutest thing on this earth. But she's also a chicken. <laughs> but she's also literally a small Houdini. She has, she can practically fly, which none of my other chickens can do. And she's like the runt. So that's, that's pretty impressive. 
So we were chasing the chickens around, and um, she ran under the shed we had in the backyard. Now, usually she'd run under there, but she'd be out within, like, a couple minutes. So me and my friend go inside after all my chickens are scared to death. And we come out, like, an hour or two later, like, we're about to leave, and bullets nowhere to be found. So we're like, okay, this is not exactly good. So I look around. Like, we're looking under, and I look under the shed, and I don't see her, which is really weird, because I don't know where she'd have gone. We didn't know where she'd gone, so we started searching the neighborhood my parents were in on this. I was, like, literally straight down crying, because I like my chickens. They're really, really cute. But, like, we were going to, like, next-door parks. We were, like, five minutes away of printing, like, lost chicken posters and putting them up around my neighborhood, when I had, I went into the neighbor's backyard, and I heard just like, like little chicken sounds. I'm like, bullet? Where'd you go? Where are you? I look down, and she has found herself a way to be under my neighbor's deck. I have no idea how she got under there. And um, we literally pried open the floorboards. My neighbors to this day do not know. We opened their um, deck and I rescued the marshmallow and now the roast marshmallow is safely in the bag. Don't knock me off. My sister, a family of four, they each had a chicken. And I say had because we've, uh, well, my young niece, she's four, she had a very special chicken, I think its name was Snowball, and a raccoon got it. And afterwards she said, how many chick lives do chickens have? And we're like, oh honey, they only have one life. And she said, I wish they had more lives. And also, I wish somebody else's chicken had died. Next up to the stage. <laughs> I believe it's, oh, hold on, I gotta travel. Yes. That was my chicken story. And now we return with Brandon Dopp. last left off, I was floating down the river with two bags under my arms, <laughs> terrified and trying to think, how am I going to get rescued? I can't float all the way to Utah. So apparently, uh, the rapids that we had just gone over are famous for capsizing lots of rafts. There were people there in that area who were throwing ropes across so that they could rescue folks. So I see this rope come flying through the air and land in front of me. Perfect, I can grab it. I can't grab it. I have these two bags, what am I gonna do? I have two choices. I can keep floating and keep my bags, or I can let the bags go to grab the rope. I went with the rope. <laughs> so I let those bags keep going. They pulled me across the river back to safety I still don't know where my friends are, and I'm worried about them, but finally they all are rescued and fished out. So we look at each other, and we're shivering. The water was so cold. We can't just call it. We have to keep going. 
Luckily, uh, somebody was able to get our raft back for us. So we waited half an hour because we had to let our nerves settle, but we've got to get down this river. We don't have another choice to leave. So we get back in the raft and we're going. There's still more rapids left and we're gritting our teeth and we're just going through them. We saw up ahead on the shore that some good Samaritan had fished our bags out of the water and left them on the shore. So we were able to get to the side and grab those and then we kept going. Looking ahead, I can see my worst nightmare. There's a big rock up there and we can see the water and we can't steer and we just know that we're gonna hit it and we end up getting beached up on this rock. And we are doing our best with our paddles. We can't move. We are stuck. The water's flying around us. So now we have to be rescued again. But how are we even going to be rescued? Ugh. So my friend, remember the guy, the really big guy who almost landed on me? Okay, he's my friend. He hops out of the raft, stands on the rock, and pushes us ahead. So yay, we're off. But now he's stuck on the rock. My friend is waving at us, getting smaller we're waving as we keep going. There's nothing we can do. We can't get back to him. So we keep going and I'm like, well, I guess he dies there. So there's just three of us left on this tour. We keep going and going. Finally, we get to the end and we're thinking, where, where's our friend? Luckily, another raft was able to pick him up and we all were rescued. <laughs> Thank you. All right, our last story is getting all hopped up, ready to compete for the title position. The judges are scoring on time, relationship to theme, and impact of story. Ladies and gentlemen, Jean Cardenio. <laughs> So on Thanksgiving day of 2004, I had a car accident. It was after Vicky died and Shawnee and I were still spending a lot of time together. And a new friend of ours named Crystal was having family and friends over for dinner. So Shawnee and I packed up some mashed potatoes and gravy, a homemade apple pie, and some homemade bread into my car. And we headed towards Crystal's house. And it was at the intersection of 16th and State. My light was green and we were T-boned right in the driver's side door. And they hit us so hard that I ended up on the curb there in front of the bank. And I remember being in an extreme amount of pain. My eyes were closed. And on my hands, I could feel some warm moisture. And I thought, oh my God, somebody's bleeding. Shani must be bleeding. And when I opened my eyes, it was gravy. <laughs> After we got out of the car, I called Crystal to let her know that we would be late and that we were fine and she should stay home with her guests because an ambulance was already on its way. And as we stood outside and waited for the ambulance, Crystal showed up. She took us to the ER and we had a great Thanksgiving. And now there's a part two to this story that I have hardly ever told, not because I don't want people to know the information, but because it's just hard to tell. But last year I went through some somatic therapy with my counselor and the way that works is I recount a story and my counselor would watch my body to see when it's activated. 
and I picked the car accident story think it would be, thinking it would be easy. And to my surprise, when we get to the part where Crystal shows up, I'm highly activated. And I remember the day of the accident feeling so overwhelmed in that moment and just wanting to break down. But Shawnee had just lost her partner, and Crystal was a new friend. So I kept it together. Oh no, I'm so sorry. So, so I kept it together and, um, oh no, I totally have lost it. So anyway, um, what I realized at that point is that what I was feeling was a deep sense of worthiness and adequacy because Crystal dropped everything, being a new friend of mine. She dropped everything to come rescue me. And um, as a person who grew up, um, playing this game of wanting to convince a key player in my life of my adequacy and worthiness, it really hit me. And now I, re I, I realize that I've taken that same game into some of my adult relationships. And, um, and as I look around and pay attention, I realize that there's all kinds of people out there who support me and protect me and take me for who I am. And thank you, Crystal, for rescuing me then and know that it's helping to rescue me now. All right, our judges are going to tabulate their results. And while they're doing that, we have a special song from The Corvids with some very good advice. Unless you want to be rescued, do not talk to goblins. This is a poem I created from all of the things my mother used to tell me. Don't you tell 
Judges, it was very difficult, and there was only one point separating the winner from the runner up. The winner is. You know, we were pirates and admirals tonight, but there are many people who have said that actually the Royal Navy were a little bit pirates too, really. <laughs> okay, so the winner. By one point is Robin Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting StoryPod to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts, plus the City of Boise Arts and History Department. 
Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari, and our guest musicians were The Corbid. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story, call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 